few minutes of my time, but that's an improvement for me because as I've explained to some people, about three hours ago I was in the middle of last week, so I'm catching up. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce today Professor Werner Hansen, who is the Professor of Mathematics in UCC and Head of Department, and was instrumental in setting up a program in UCC on financial mathematics and actuarial mathematics. And today Werner is going to talk to us about his work on exponential polynomial trigonometric functions with possible applications to levy calculus and mathematical finance. So, Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me here. Um, uh, what I'm going to talk about is um, a certain class of functions which are well known in uh, linear system theory. Now I get a sense that in the Hamilton Institute that is something that people know about, so uh, that's, that's very good for me. Um, at the same time, I'm um, using those in a rather un... Um, um, uh, in a rather new setting, I guess, in uh, financial mathematics. So um, uh, we'll see how that works. Um, it does mean that we kind of switch from one field to the other. So, so please stop me if you have questions, because uh, that usually works best. If you uh, uh, have any questions, uh, let me know. So what we are looking at is a rather simple class of functions. and. I could present them uh, in two different ways, but the, the same class of functions. The first is what um, uh, the way that, that, that analysts would write them down. You, you have uh, pk being a polynomial, and e to the power mu k x an exponential. Uh, here we allow mu k to be uh, complex, so that also means that cosines or, or, or signs may come in. Um, and then um, we take the real part, just a matter of writing things down. Uh, now, what's interesting is that there's a totally different way of writing down the same class of functions, and we write them down as c times e to the power ax of b uh, times b, but then I have to explain to you what that notation means, because a, uh, for me, is an n by n matrix. So we use the matrix exponential, which... I hope you know, but if you don't, then I'll write them down. I mean, the A, can I use this? It's hopefully not a permanent marker. I mean, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, one way of, of, of defining uh, the, the um, uh, matrix exponential is just uh, writing down the Taylor series. And um, of an exponential, and then uh, realizing that if I put a matrix A in here and I uh, replace the usual one by an identity matrix, then I have a totally valid uh, expression which maps uh, the matrix A times the scalar X to another matrix. Uh, so this is a matrix exponential. So um, the same set of functions can be written in, in two ways, uh, one in, in this way and one in this way. Now, if you've done... Uh, um, and a module in linear system theory, then I guess you probably have come across uh, this kind of expression because it's the impulse response function of a linear system in state space form. So if you have a linear system in state space form, x dot is ax uh, plus uh, bu and y is uh, cx, 
then the impulse response function would typically be of, um, of this form. Uh, let me say a bit more. Uh, C is a row vector and B is a column vector. So the expression C times e to the power AXB is a scalar function, um, as it should be, because the first one was also a scalar function. Now, what's in there? That's quite interesting. Uh, I claim that the real polynomials in there, the real exponential functions, and scaled real trigonometric functions, uh, uh, polynomials, so um, cosines and sines uh, are there, uh, e to the power lambda x are there, and, and polynomials are there. And uh, furthermore, it is a ring, which means that if you multiply any of those functions, then you get another one in the same class. If you add any of those functions, uh, a pair of those functions, you, you, you remain in the same class. So it has a very nice uh, mathematical structure. So it's closed on the various operations. Actually, we'll come up with even more operations under which it is closed. Um, and that's uh, very nice. Now, one way to look at functions like this is to look at the corresponding uh, Fourier or Laplace transform. In systems theory, this would mean that you're going to look at the transfer function. Uh, but um, uh, it goes under different names in different fields, actually. So uh, now look at what you get if you work out this integral here. If you work a little bit, then uh, what you'll see is that um, you'll get this function, which is a rational function. It's a rational function of s. It's just a, a quotient of two polynomials. And the degree of the denominator polynomial is n, and the degree of the numerator polynomial is less than n. Now, typically, when we say that, then we have already taken out any uh, common factors. So let's assume that we've taken out any common factors. Then n, uh, the degree of the denominator polynomial, is called the Macmillan degree of that um, uh, function. Yeah, so the Laplace transform is just a rational function, very simple object. And um, also, what is known is that the zeros of Q, the poles of this function, are typically the eigenvalues of the A matrix under some extra conditions that I'll come back to. Okay, any questions? Okay, then, as you've heard, uh, I'm in financial math. So, uh, the question is, one, one question you could pose is how could you, uh, how do, how, where do you find those functions in financial math and how could you perhaps use those functions in financial math? Um, now what we'll talk about today is the usage as probability density functions. So financial math, if you've heard about it, then, then I'm sure you know that this is um, concerning stochastic models. So there's a lot of uh, randomness uh, um, all around. Uh, and we work with uh, density functions. Now, classically, we would work with Gaussian density functions, or even log normal, but uh, let's say Gaussian for the moment. And when you've read the newspapers the last five years, then you've also heard that there's some uh, critique on using the, the bell curve, which is uh, something which uh, has um, uh, very small tails, so the probability of some, some uh, outlier is pretty small if you have uh, 
the, uh, the Gaussian curve. Uh, we know that it's going uh, to, to zero very quickly uh, because of the e to the power minus x squared. Um, so what people are doing in financial math is trying to use different density functions. And uh, we'll come across uh, some of them later on. Now suppose that you would like to use functions of this type as density functions. Then the question is what do you need to do? Well, first of all, probabilities or probability density functions are non-negative. So we'll have to worry about non-negativity of those functions. And secondly, uh, they have to be integrable. So uh, we'll have to worry about when a function of that type uh, is integrable. Now, what I want to do today is to tell you uh, quite a bit more about uh, how we treat non-negativity. Still not the whole story, but I want to um, give you some of the ingredients. So I'll tell a bit more about that. Um, what is important in the whole discussion is to realize that we uh, like to work with minimal realizations. So we like to work with uh, n by n a matrices where n is the Macmillan degree, which is the number of poles of the um, uh, transform. Uh, so um, we want to work with a matrices which have a, a minimal size in a sense. So uh, that's important. If you do that, then um, integrability can be translated into stability of the A matrix. So what we need for integrability is the, the it turns out, you can, I don't prove that here, but it turns out is that you will need that this object goes to zero for x to infinity. And you can show that that um, means that the A matrix has to have all its eigenvalues in the open left half plane. Uh, once you have that, then uh, you can work out what the integral is and then divide by it to make uh, the integral equal to 1, as we like to, to have in, prob in probability theory. Okay, um, so I'll talk more about non-negativity and also talk more later on about what we call a Perron-Frobenius result for non-negative EPT functions. And the result is already mentioned here. It says that if you look at the eigenvalues of the A matrix, and it's best to make a picture, then this is a kind of a result which, um, which um, kind of was floating around in the literature, but we thought nobody really um, uh, gave the result and gave a proof. So we, we uh, wrote a bit of a survey article to, uh, to do that. But if you have the poles of the uh, system in the complex plane, so this is C, uh, let's say that uh, you have the origin here, um, we need all the eigenvalues in the left half plane. So they have to be uh, over there. Let, now let, let's look at um, the critical line which separates the spectrum, which, which is the, the line which is um, uh, the line that lies to the, to, to mostly to the left, uh, but such that all the spectrum lies to the left of the, uh, the line. Um, so there could be elements on, on here. Uh, what the Perron-Frobenius type result says is that the uh, real point over here has to be in the spectrum. So this is what we call the real dominant pole. 
real dominant eigenvalue. Um, eigenvalue. Um, this guy has to be there. So in other words, it's impossible if you would find a picture like this, where you only have complex uh, poles on this line, uh, but, but no real pole, because then you can show that uh, eventually the function will become uh, uh, negative at, at points. So you really need uh, a point uh, in the spectrum like that. But we'll come back to that later on. Okay, so what can we say about non-negativity? Well, um, what, what we're going to do is we're going to separate the tail of the EPT function from a finite interval. So we're going to say, first, what about the behavior on a finite interval from 0 to t? And what about the tail behavior? So let's try to answer this uh, question first. And we're going to actually look at a more, comp uh, more uh, general question. Uh, can you read this? Uh, let's look at this question. So can we construct an algorithm that finds all the sign-changing zeros of the function on the interval 0t. That would be nice. So can we find, uh, is there an algorithm which gives you all the, uh, the, the cases where you have a change of sign in your function? Now if you go to the polynomials, and actually polynomials are a subclass, polynomials are a subclass, um, then the answer is yes, and I think that uh, you know what to do. Uh, technically speaking, it's called uh, forming a Boudin Fourier sequence. But what you would do if you, uh, if you were given uh, a polynomial, uh, and I think you may have seen it already in high school, but what the teacher would say is, well, if, if the polynomial goes up, then the derivative is positive. So you take the first derivative um, and, and you wonder then about the same question for the first derivative. If you, if you would have all the sign changing zeros of the first derivative, then you, would have, then you would know the answer. Now, to answer that, you can take the second derivative, and to answer that is third derivative. And that's what I've done here, uh, but in the notation uh, ABC. So what you would do here, if uh, is you take the derivatives up till the nth derivative, in which case you end up with zero, and then you work your way back because you say, well, if I um, uh, am at uh, the n minus first derivative, then we know that I have a constant, so the next one up must be, um, uh, must be uh, increasing if it's a positive constant or decreasing if it's a negative constant, um, and as soon as I have that behavior, then I know that uh, in between uh, any two points, there can be at most one cha sign changing zero. So that's the, the key of the story, that you're going to look at intervals on which you know that the function that you want to investigate has at most one sign changing zero. If that's the case, then you can look at the endpoints and check and the two possibilities. Either the sign is the same, 
then there's nothing to do because there cannot be two sign changing zeros. So there must be zero sign changing zeros if the signs are the same at the endpoints. If uh, all the signs are different, and then you know that there's one sign changing zero, which you can find by bisection. Yeah? So if there's one sign changing zero, this is all you know, totally uh, classical. Uh, so what would you do? You would say, uh, I'm going to find, I, I know that the signs are different. I'm going to find a zero. Well, let's look in the middle. And then I, uh, here I see that it's still, uh, that it must be in this part. And I look in the middle here. And then you, know, you kind of zoom into the, uh, the zero using bisection. OK, now let's look at uh, the particular way I've written it down here. There's something that you should know, which is that uh, c e to the power a t b is a polynomial if and only if the A matrix is nilpotent. Uh, because uh, uh, if the A matrix is nilpotent, then, uh, uh, then uh, there is a power, let's say n, for which uh, A to the power n is 0. If you would work out my, mat my matrix exponential, then this would stop um, at uh, the term A to the power n minus 1, x to the power n minus 1. Um, and, and you would have a polynomial matrix and then C times e to the power ax uh, b would be a polynomial. And now if uh, this is true, then uh, you indeed see that this stops here. So I mean, you can see it at two levels. If you know, if you, if you know that for a polynomial, if you uh, differentiate often enough, you will get 0. Uh, but you also see it in my formulas, because you, you know that a to the power n is 0. And, uh, and you end uh, up here. Now, this is uh, a nice way for me to write it down because this will uh, generalize. This will generalize. Um, let me first give you a bit of a formal definition. I'm talking, uh, I'm calling an interval for a function uh, simple. I don't know if this is really strange. Uh, so anyway, so an interval will be called simple for a function if uh, on that interval there's at most one sign changing zero. Yeah, so then we call it a simple interval. And we know that uh, once you know that it's a simple interval, you know that by section you can find, uh, the you can de first determine uh, whether there's a sign changing zero. And if there is one, you can find it by, uh, by section. Yeah, so that's uh, the concept of a simple interval. And the next concept is the concept of a simple grid, which is what you would think it to be. Um, sorry, so here's that definition we call a grid, a simple grid, if it um, partitions the interval into simple intervals. So if you have uh, uh, an a long interval here, then if you would come up with um, a, a partitioning such that on each of those intervals uh, the, the function would be simple, then you know what to do because you can, uh, for each of those intervals, just perform the bisection as I described before. Yeah, so. Um, to find this sign change in zeros it can then be brought back to finding a simple grid for the function. 
So as you can say, if I know the simple grid for the function, then I, uh, then I with bisection, can find uh, the sign changing zeros. Uh, so given a, uh, such a grid, you can find all the sign changing zeros because you can find them on, on each of the intervals. Okay, now these uh, simple grids have um, two nice properties, two very important nice properties. I'm not sure if it's readable. I'll try to. Yeah, I think, okay. So, first of all, and that's different from the polynomial case, uh, first of all, if a certain grid is simple for f, then if I multiply f by a positive or a function, or even a function which doesn't change sign, then it's also simple for f times g. Yeah, because I'm just looking at the sign changing zeros. So if I multiply f by a function g which doesn't change any sign, then of course the sign changing zeros will be at the same location um, and, uh, and the, the interval will be simple for f, even only if uh, it is uh, uh, simple for f times g. So that's a very simple remark. Um, the other remark is the following, and you have to read that carefully. So if the grid uh, consists of the boundary points together with the sign-changing zeros of a function h, so now I'm at the other level. I'm, I'm saying if that uh, grid consists of the sign-changing zeros of a function h and, and some boundary points, and h is continuous on the interval a0, an, then the same grid is obtained if I would use h times k instead of h, where k is a continuous function which is not changing sign on that interval. So if k is either strictly positive or strictly negative function, then um, if the uh, grid was defined by h, then it's just as well defined by h times k. So it still looks rather obvious, uh, but it is a, an important tool for us to construct um, what, we, what we call Boolean Fourier sequences. And so what we're going to do now is we are first going to look at the case where um, the eigenvalues of A are no longer zero, as was the case in the polynomial case. Um, sorry, so we look at this. We say, uh, let H of T be uh, a function as we have uh, all the time. Let lambda one up to lambda n denote the eigenvalues of A. And suppose for this moment that they are real eigenvalues, and uh, let uh, uh, which which can have an algebraic multiplicity larger than one. So lambda one and lambda two can be the same, but that just means that uh, the, the multiplicity of lambda one is is bigger than uh, or equal to two. Yeah, so you just write down the n eigenvalues and you repeat them if uh, they have higher multiplicity. And then the uh, sequence that we are going to look at is the following. 
let me do that step by step. So first of all, H1 is not quite the derivative of H0, because that would be C times A times e to the power ATB, but instead we take A minus lambda 1i. Yeah? So this is uh, uh, the new element. Now in the polynomial case, lambda 1 was 0, so in some sense we are not doing anything different, but, uh, but uh, we do have lambda 1 here now. Um, and then uh, for H2, we take A minus lambda 1i, H minus lambda 2i, etc. And if we keep on going like that, then we end up with Hn, which looks like this. And then we use Cayley Hamilton, or being in Dublin, I probably should call it Hamilton Cayley, but uh, we say, ah, wait a minute, uh, this matrix in the middle here is actually zero, yeah, because it's uh, the characteristic function in which we plug in uh, of, a, of A, in which we plug in the A matrix, so that has to be zero. So the whole function has to be zero. So that's very nice. It means that the sequence that I'm creating here is a finite sequence, ends after n steps, um, and I'm done, because I claim that this is a, uh, uh, that this is a, uh, uh, what we call a Boudin Fourier sequence, Sorry about this, shouldn't be there. Um, uh, for uh, the interval. So uh, what we do is, what we claim is that uh, we can start uh, on the, uh, from the bottom, work out, well here we have a zero, then we go to h n minus one, then we can work out, uh, that will be, uh, uh, we'll have no sign change in zeros, but then uh, you go to h n minus two, and then you look at uh, the whole interval, and you, you look at whether there's a sign change zero or not. If there is one, then you partition the interval into two, and then you go back up to the next step. Now let's see um, how much time you have. Uh, okay, then I'll skip uh, the proof. So if you're interested, then I, I, can, um, uh, I can tell you about it later on. So I'll skip the proof, but this is the, um, the Boudin-Fourier sequence for um, the case of um, uh, real eigenvalues, lambda. Now, what we also have is a Boudin-Fourier sequence in the case that uh, A is arbitrary, so we would, have, uh, we would allow complex uh, eigenvalues. And there, what you have to do is you have to... Um, to uh, bring in some more boundary points which are related to the to the sine functions, but um, yeah. So maybe I should kind of uh, stop the story about uh, about that here and um, just say that we have uh, these Boudin-Fourier sequences. We also program them. And uh, with a simple bisection algorithm, and it, uh, it allows you for any function of this type uh, by calculating the eigenvalues of A to find on any interval 0 to t where the sign changing zeros are. Now, of course, um, as I started out with non negativity, uh, for us, uh, we are happy if there are no sign changing zeros. So, so if the outcome is zero, then we are happy. Yeah? But that's. Uh, so the algorithm is much more general and, and gives you any sign-changing zero uh, of that function. Okay. Um, a few remarks. 
first of all, when you think about it, it also gives you some kind of uh, upper bound on the number of sign-changing zeros of the uh, function. And actually, that uh, hooks up with the classical result. So you can show now that there are at most n minus 1 of those zeros. Uh, if you go back, you can only, uh, in each of the intervals, gain one interval, one, one sign-changing zero at max. Uh, and that's the classical result by Polya and Sega. There's this upper bound, but we actually find them. Um, and using the bisection techniques, we can uh, find uh, all the sign changing zeros with arbitrary precision. Now, I must confess that mathematically, there's still one unresolved issue, which is very, uh, um, totally, seems to be totally irrelevant for practice. But I mean, if you have a combination of exponentials, and you work out what the, what the number is, and you find point zero 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 zero, and, uh, and you have hundreds of decimals all equal to zero, then from the logical point of view, you're still not sure <laughs> whether that will keep on going. You know? So if you don't have any other evidence that, that this actually is mathematically zero, then um, uh, there seems to be a bit of a kind of a, a hole in, in the logic. But for, uh, for practical applications, of course, this is not, not relevant at all, as far as I can see, because you can just check. Uh, for any precision that you like, whether this function is actually zero. Uh, just to, just to, to kind of flag that. Okay, so um, what does that mean? It means that on a finite interval, we are now uh, have a hold on, we now know how to check non-negativity of the uh, EPT function. Um, now let's look at this Perron-Frobenius type result again. So we also know that you look uh, when the function is non-negative and you look into the spectrum that there has to be a real dominant pole. So in other words, if you look at the maximum real part um, of all the eigenvalues lambda in the spectrum of A, then that is a real number. That real number has to be in the spectrum of A again. And um, If there are more elements on that vertical line, then uh, it's a bit tricky. Uh, we do have results on that, but um, I, I think that if you're in the situation where this is the only one, then things simplify. So that's the remark I wanted to make here. So if you have a unique real dominant pole, so there's nothing else on that, uh, no, no, no spectral elements uh, on the vertical here, then you can argue that uh, that dominant pole will start to dominate. So you will be able to find a T such that for uh, T larger than this capital T, the, 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 the dominant term will take over. Uh, and so you don't have to worry about the sign here anymore. And then you can use the BF algorithm to check uh, the sign of the function between uh, zero and capital T. Yeah? So then you can use the BF sequence approach to check. Uh, so in that case, uh, we have a complete solution. Yeah? So if the spectrum is of this type, then we can uh, tell you uh, uh, whether your function is non-negative or not. OK. OK, so that's good. So um, we have uh, reasonable control. We have more results on, on uh, the tails, but I won't go into that here but we have reasonable control over uh, the non-negativity of the uh, EPT functions. Uh, what we're going to do next is we're going to look at densities on the real line. 
And how do we do that? Well, in a rather um, straightforward fashion, we just take the positive half line, there we put an EPT function, and we take the negative half line together, we put it kind of uh, switched around uh, EPT function, and um, uh, the forward one, the, the, which is AP and BP, CP, has to be stable, and the backward one with the, the negative half line has to be anti-stable, so all the eigenvalues will have to be in the open right half plane. So you get, um, and, and again you have a PF type uh, uh, result here, so you get uh, pictures of this type. Uh, now this is not symmetric at all, I mean this could be very close to uh, to the origin, I mean uh, that's uh, I'm not suggesting any symmetry, but there has to be uh, one, uh, um, one vertical to the left and one vertical to the right and you get a, uh, a picture like this for the spectrum of your, um, uh, of your uh, transform. So let's first say what the transform is. I'm going to look at that density function. I'm forming the, uh, the uh, transform. Here we go. We get two uh, integrals, one on the negative half line, one on the positive half line. Each one gives me a rational function. So I get the sum of two rational functions. I can add them and I get another rational function. But what's nice is that there's this uh, unique split up. As we know, if, you if, you, if, if I give you a rational function, you can split it up uniquely into uh, two rational functions, one which has all the uh, poles. Uh, should I start again? So suppose you have a strictly proper rational function, and then we know that you can uniquely split it up into a strictly proper rational function with poles in the left half plane and a strictly proper rational function with poles in the right half plane. Um, and, and, these, uh, and this one corresponds to the positive part and this to the negative part. Right, and then there's one more element that I want to bring in. If you look at the transforms, and there's one more thing that fits in very nicely with the family, which is the point mass at zeros. It's very natural to bring in the point mass at zero, the delta, the Dirac delta distribution. Um, if we allow that and allow mixtures with the uh, two EPT functions that we've seen so far, then uh, we'll end up with uh, Laplace transforms which are just uh, proper rational functions. So where's the D? Here's the D. So you just get a constant in your uh, Laplace or uh, Fourier transform and you get uh, uh, proper rational functions. So you can also look at it from the other way around. You can say, suppose I want to investigate the family of all density functions which have a rational transform, then the answer this is this is it. You get the two EPTs and the, and the Dirac delta function. Okay, I have to hurry up. Let me um, uh, stress again that we can do a lot of calculations in terms of our ABC uh, we, and that's typically something that we know from systems theory so we can do scaling and addition uh, multiplication uh, is, uh, is possible as well you get the Kronecker sum there that's uh, less known in system theory but still uh, we can use that convolution is multiplication of the transfer functions or the, the transforms, so that's uh, multiplication of the systems. 
uh, maximum minimum of the random variables. You can take the, the maximum of two random variables, get again an EPT uh, random variable. And then it's composition and moments, but I'm not going to say what that is. Uh, why not? Because I want to move on to finance. Now, if you're in finance, then you may have heard of the variance gamma density. And um, the variance gamma density is a rather popular alternative to uh, Gaussian densities. Uh, unfortunately, the density function itself uh, tends to be rather complicated, so usually it's, it's, it's introduced by looking at its characteristic function, and here it is, and except uh, apart from the typo, it's a, a simple rational function in uh, the argument taken to a power c. Now, if c is integer, then, of course, uh, we have, again, a rational function. So that's not in the variance gamma definition. In the variance gamma definition, C and G and M are arbitrary positive numbers. But what we are saying is, suppose that you just look at the case where C is integer, then our character the characteristic function that you get is rational. So that means, according to what I just said, that it should be uh, representable in terms of, an, uh, in terms of uh, our EPT formalism. So there must be uh, A and P, a P and, and uh, B and C like that. Well, here they are. So you can work that out. So you can find uh, an AP, so a stable uh, matrix, and an anti-stable matrix, and, and a B and a C, such that uh, the variance gamma can be written in this form. OK, so that's nice. Um, now, why are these variance gamma densities popular? Well, they uh, can be associated with a process. Now, you probably have come across the Brownian motion process at some point, I hope. <laughs> uh, so if you add a lot of uh, Gaussian variables, you know that you will again get a Gaussian variable. Um, it, uh, but if you want to go away from Gaussian, then what do we do? Well, variance gamma is one uh, alternative. Um, and uh, basically, when you start to add ra random variables of this type, then you will see that the C starts to add, because uh, addition of random variables means multiplication of the characteristic functions. So if you have two uh, of the same type uh, variance gammas, then everything in between the brackets is the same, and you just get C1 plus C2. So you see that uh, the C takes on a kind of time character. Uh, it, is, uh, it takes on the character of a time variable. And um, uh, that's actually being done. And it's used as a process in time where you get um, uh, the, the, the time variable up here. Now, uh, that all works fine. Uh, we know it's a Levy process. I don't have much time to explain. Um, that in detail, but I'll say as much as possible. So the, the question arises, can you also characterize two EPT Levy processes? OK. I'll explain what that is all about. 
we start with the celebrated Levy-Kinshein formula. Uh, now, if you haven't seen that, I realize that it's difficult to kind of grasp all that um, in one go. But um, uh, the crucial concept here is, inf is uh, infinite divisibility. And the, the first thing is this. I mean, if you have uh, random variables x and y, um, then by adding them, you will get a new variable, uh, random variable z. And as I just said, if x and y would be Gaussian, then we know that z will be Gaussian. Uh, but you can also ask the question the other way around. If I, if, if I give you the z, are you able to write it as the sum of two independent random variables which have, which have the same, densi the same uh, density or the same distribution and give you the distribution of z? So that's the concept of divisibility. So if you can uh, uh, write your random variable as uh, the sum of a copy or a number of copies of random variables with the same distribution, then we call this uh, guy divisible. And infinitely divisible means that you can do that for arbitrary uh, large numbers of random variables. So here it's just for two, but uh, maybe you also want to do it for three and for four, etc. So. Uh, uh, then you get infinite divisibility if you can do that for any n. Now, not every random variable is um, infinitely divisible. Uh, so the question arises when it is, and that's answered by this uh, celebrated theorem. At the same time, if it is infinitely divisible, then the, in the probabilistic literature you can see that you can that, that also means that uh, uh, the random variable can be viewed as the outcome of a, a so-called Levy process with independent increments. So you can view it as a continuous time, outcome of a continuous time process uh, with in, in independent increments. Now, unfortunately, I cannot explain all that in, in the time frame that we have. But um, what is important here is, in this formula, is, is this measure. So we say that the density function is infinitely divisible and therefore comes from a Levy process if and only if uh, the new that you get here, which is a, uh, is, uh, is a proper measure, so a non-negative uh, measure. So if you have a non-negative measure there, then you have uh, an infinitely divisible uh, process and, and, and um, random variable and therefore a Levy process. So you can now wonder under what conditions do you get infinite, div infinite divisibility for uh, EPT functions, so one-sided? And there's a very nice result uh, by Lukacs from the literature, which says that, first of all, the zeros of the uh, transform now come into play. And there's one um, uh, necessary condition, which says that the... Uh, the real parts of the zeros also have to, be, have to lie to the left of the real dominant pole. So if you would uh, put in the zeros here with, uh, with um, uh, small circles, then uh, they could be complex or, or, uh, or real, but they all have to lie to the left of this uh, real dominant pole. So for infinite, infinite divisibility, that's uh, a first requirement. 
So it, it, it's very close to what we would call minimum phase in system theory, but then uh, that's if you would view this half plane as the, as the, open, uh, as the usual open left half plane. That is a, there's a close link with well-known concepts from system theory. Okay, now uh, oh, here's my picture actually. Same picture. Now, okay, I'll jump, I guess, to the theorem, given the time. So what's the condition for uh, two EPT densities to be infinitely divisible? Well, here it is. First of all, uh, we know what the matrix A is, but we have to come up with the matrix B. But B is just uh, B is the companion matrix of the zeros of the um, system. So there's the zeros of the rational function. Uh, so technically speaking, we've written that down here. You can form C times SI minus A star, uh, where, where this is the adjoint. So that will be a polynomial and form the companion matrix of that polynomial. And then you have B. Um, then the condition is that the trace of e to the power ax minus the trace of e to the power bx will have to be non-negative. Now I know that sounds a bit technical, so I have a more direct way of telling you what this is all about. A more direct way is given here. Um, I think this should be just EPT. So look at my EPT function. Look at its transform. There will be poles and zeros. The poles are the eigenvalues of A. Uh, and the zeros are just the zero of, that, uh, of the, 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 numerate, the numerator polynomial. Let's, let the poles be denoted by lambda i and the zeros be denoted by eta j. Then what I do is I form very simply, e to the power lambda ix and minus e to the power eta jx and then sum up over all the poles and sum up over all the zeros. So the poles get a plus in, in here and the, the, the zeros get a minus one. And then I'm adding all those exponential functions. I will definitely end up with a real function and that function will have to be non-negative. Now what is nice is that it's of course again uh, of the same class that we've been looking at anyway. It's actually uh, not polynomial in this case, so it's ET. It's an ET function. Oh, yeah. uh, but we have the same techniques uh, that we just uh, uh, described to check uh, at least to some extent you know, that, uh, the non-negativity of that function, so especially if, the, if there's a strictly real dominant pole there, then we know exactly how to check non-negativity, also using the BF sequence approach, etc. So we can check uh, whether the EPT function is infinitely divisible and coming from a Levy process. And I'm going to look at Ollie to see how much time there's left. Yeah, that's sufficient, that's sufficient. What about two EPT functions? 
Well, for two EPT functions, it is kind of what you would expect. Um, best actually to show you the picture. So it, it, to check whether you have a two EPT, uh, whether your two EPT function is, is infinitely divisible, uh, plot the poles and the zeros. You should get something like this, that it should be uh, one real dominant pole on the left half plane, one real dominant pole on the right half plane. Um, the, the zeros and the other poles should lie to the left of this one or to the right of this one. And there's an obvious factorization into two rational functions, uh, one corresponding to, to this part and one corresponding to that part. And the theorem now is that each one of those factors has to be infinite divisible by itself. Yeah? So the, uh, the, the right one factor is, is uh, so this, this is uh, uh, corresponding to uh, uh, an EPT on the positive half line, uh, and that has to be uh, infinitely divisible, and this corresponds to an EPT on the, on the negative half line, that has to be infinitely divisible, so that's kind of, uh, it's clear that in that case things work, and that's, uh, you can also show that that's the only case in which things work. Now technically speaking it does involve uh, Wiener-Hopf factorization, so something again which is known both, both in system theory actually but also in, in uh, probability theory. Now what can we do with that in finance? Well, if you model your markets with uh, a 2 EPT levy process then you can actually calculate corresponding option prices. And that's what's known for the variance gamma, but we do it also for uh, these two EPT processes. So just to give you a bit of a flavor of what we can do, you uh, can look at a share price process like in 18. So typically we would do that multiplicatively, or uh, in, in the case of Brownian motion, we talk about geometric Brownian motion. Uh, but you get a multiplicative uh, process, so if you take the logarithms of the shares, then you get um, uh, an additive process. So you say, suppose that the share price develops in this way, where xt is now described by uh, an EPT process, then um, to get to come down to the option prices you first and that's something that comes typically from financial math you first have to calculate the risk neutral measure that corresponds to the original measure p the risk neutral measure is uh, denoted by q here and you see that to get that you have to uh, make some corrections here to get to the to the, to the risk neutral measure and then under the risk neutral measure you have to take the expected value um, of uh, your option, uh, sorry, so here you get that the expected value of st has to be equal to this. Um, you, we can calculate the omega and uh, the formula for the call option price just to show you that that can be done and how it looks like. Formula for the call option price in our case is uh, of this type, so you see uh, um, some matrix exponentials and some um, uh, inverses, but all with our ABC calculus. Um, 
we can also calculate so-called deltas and gammas for those of you who are into that. So we have explicit formulas for deltas and gammas. Now, even in the, Gauss, in the Gaussian case, the formulas would not be as explicit as this, as this uh, because you would always have the, uh, the Gaussian distribution, which you have to get from a table or, or, or something like that. Here we have very explicit um, expressions. Uh, yeah. One thing which is very nice is that the method can be used to calculate the value of so-called look-back options. Now, what is a look-back option? Look-back option is an option in which the maximum share price that has occurred over the past period shows up in your uh, payoff function. So you say, uh, people like that usually, they say, well, uh, the share price has gone that and that high, and I should have sold maybe at that point. But then the contract says, yeah, yeah, the output will be related to that maximum, so you can uh, sleep quietly. Well, I wouldn't sleep that quietly myself, but anyway. Uh, so the, the, the maximum that has been obtained comes into the contract. Uh, now, if we calculate maxima on discrete time points, then what we can show is that the resulting maximum itself is a random variable, which is again EPT. And uh, we have a very nice way of uh, uh, calculating um, uh, the, min the, the maximum or the minimum over a whole range of points if you have uh, uh, independent increments. And so we are able to calculate uh, these look-back options, which are difficult to calculate in uh, the usual Gaussian setting. So we get very, uh, well, we, we use discrete time points, but anyway, uh, we have very explicit uh, formulas for those. But I think I'm running out of time. Or, oh, I've, <laughs> I, I've skipped. Uh, so let me just finish off um, with a few references. Um, so some of you might be interested in this one, which I didn't talk about, which actually, because one obvious question that you could pose after all of this is, how did you get your densities in the first place? So what, what we can do is we can look at data. So we, for instance, uh, didn't bring that, but we can look at uh, Dow Jones data. So we just look at... Uh, at what the Dow Jones was doing over the last 50 years or so. You build a histogram uh, of the uh, changes in the index. And then we can fit uh, an, EPT an EPT function to that. And uh, this uh, paper here describes how, how you can actually do this fitting. Um, and what it turns out is that we got pretty low order, order three or something like that. Yeah, that's the kind of order that, you, that, you, that we get for the Dow Jones. So uh, we think that with reasonably low order, you can already do quite a bit with these functions. Um, uh, but, but that's um, uh, something that we've looked into as well. Um, now, if you want to know more, then we've put most of our material on this uh, website, e even including uh, some uh, MATLAB functions, so the, the, the bisections, etc. So if you want to check your own exponential functions, on, uh, then you can use uh, the, the MATLAB functions from the website.
Thank you. So we probably have time for one, maybe two quick questions. Yeah, I've got two questions. I mean, normally the Levy distribution, the Gaussian distribution, they're stable uh, solutions to a, a master equation and so on. Uh, your distribution, are you having a stable solution in that sense you know, the, uh, of some sort of a master equation? Or is it just, if you say, phenomenologically, you want to match the, the density to what you actually see in practice? At the moment, that's my uh, point of view, uh, which doesn't conflict with if anybody else would say, well, for instance, the people from Variance Gamma would really have a big story behind it. You know, they, they really believe that that has to be you know, the case. Uh, that is still possible, of course, but, but we look at it at the moment from a more phenomenological point of view and say, well, this, this can be done, you know, we have the techniques to do this. And uh, infinite, infinite divisibility is the way that we approach the Levy process here. So we just look at infinite divisibility, look at analytical techniques, which kind of match very nicely, of course, with rational functions and things like that. And then we find this nice criterion you know, that, uh, that, that shows that this uh, Levy process uh, exists and, and the Levy measure is non-negative you know, under certain conditions. Uh, on the other hand, yeah, so I haven't really and have gone into the kind of questions that you pose, but I, uh, one remark is that, of course, the EPT functions are very classical. We also call them Euler d'Alembert because they're the solutions to linear differential equations with constant coefficients. And I think that, that might help, you know, in any <laughs> of the kind of uh, considerations that, that people might look into. If you have a a PDE or something like that, then it of course helps if you have uh, solutions to a linear differential equation. So that's the kind of still to be to be considered. It's like the use of the Black-Scholes Merton It's just that. And one question is simply: you mentioned it, you got it. You mentioned independent increments. Yes. And you make that assumption for these type of distributions. The statement is that if the EPT density satisfies my condition, then it can be viewed as uh, coming from uh, a Levy process, within, obviously with independent increments. So you can then work out what the Levy process is and you can view it as, as Poisson, jump points, etc., etc. But that's kind of classical uh, theory. But um, all we say is that if, we, if you have a, a density of this type, then you can view it as coming from a Levy process. Is it? Yeah. Okay, so we have no more questions. Uh, maybe just to remind everyone, Bernard will be with us until about 5 p.m. today. And uh, if anyone wants to talk to him, and otherwise, just to thank Bernard again for the seminar. Yeah. Okay